Welcome to Travel Worth Living, a travel podcast helping to share stories that matter from around the world. My name is Seth, and I'll be your host as I talk with a retired military man and extreme expedition team member. Barry joined the Royal Marines Commandos when he was just 17, completing one of the toughest infantry trainings in the world. He spent 26 years in the military becoming a mountain leader and cold weather survival expert, often training in the harsh Norwegian winters. After his retirement as a regimental sergeant major, he is now transitioning into the world of extreme expeditions. During this first part of our conversation, Barry shares about his time in the military and what lessons he learned from that training. He then tells the story of his expedition with Tim Jarvis, recreating Shackleton's historic escape from Antarctica. Next week, we'll finish that story and then hear about phase one of Barry's record-breaking attempt through Antarctica. We always enjoy hearing your feedback after each episode, so be sure and connect with us on social media at Travel Worth Living or on the web at TravelWorthLiving.com. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Barry. Barry, thank you so much for coming on Travel Worth Living. I'm super excited to chat with you and hear about some of the stories, the adventures that you've been on. Yeah, it's great to be here, sir. Thanks for inviting me on. And um, it was our old friend in a previous podcast with yours, Grant, that introduced me to you, I know. So I've got him to thank for sitting here now. Yes, absolutely. So let's go ahead and get started with um, who you are. For our listeners, tell me just a, a broad overview of what you're up to right now. Okay, well, I'm I'm sort of in a bit of a, a stalemate in, in, in life at the moment, if you like, and going through a complete career a career transition but prior to getting to where I am now I I sort of I'm a a very big military man I was born into a military family uh, and traveled extensively as a child with my father in the British army we, we you know we, we lived over you know all over the, the, the world and um, most of it I don't remember but places like Germany um, a lot of different places within the UK um, Cyprus, Gibraltar, places like that. Um, it was Cyprus in my older years. I was about 13, 14 when I really started to, you know, to actually explore and learn about the places that we were actually traveling to and actually appreciate the fact that we weren't just sat in the UK all the time. So we traveled a lot as a kid. Every two years, literally, we moved around. Um, and because it was a, a, a military background that I was always surrounded by, I think it was quite obvious I was going to potentially end up joining the forces myself at some point because it, it's not sort of it's not all I knew but it's, it's what I was very interested in I wasn't particularly academic but I was very physically fit and active as, as, a, as a child I, I didn't excel in any individual sport but I was pretty good at most of them you know that that type of guy that just just turn up and play something you know and and do all right in a team um, and as a 16-year-old boy, I, dis I, I, I discovered this group of guys called the Royal Marine Commandos, um, the, the toughest military infantry training in the world. And I thought, hey, do you know what? I want to give that a go. I fancy that. And, you know, before my 18th birthday, I was a member of them. I joined them. Uh, and I spent then 26 years of my life as a Royal Marine Commando, as a mountain leader expert, as an extreme cold weather survival um, expert. I've traveled all over the world with, with those guys, teaching, training, and, and having fun, as well as all of the operational stuff that's happened in the last sort of 15, 20 years. I've done the Iraq tours, the Afghanistan tours, Kosovo's, the Northern Islands over, over here. Um, so a real mixed bag of travel, adventure, of you know unbelievably tough times and exceptionally high times. 
and I left the Royal Marines as a regimental sergeant major in December 2016 to pursue my newfound ambition of extreme expeditions, you know, the extreme end of, of travel and putting myself through even more pain, if, even if the, if the last 26 years wasn't enough. Uh, I decided while I was young enough, fit enough and strong enough, I was going to continue my adventure into the extreme expedition world, which is what I do now. And um, from a physical sitting down, having a proper career point of view, I've not quite got there yet. Uh, I've just, I'm just managing to, to make it work and keep the bills being paid while pursuing and planning some of my, my big expeditions. Tough days, good days, bad days, but, um, but I'm getting by and, uh, and loving it. That's awesome. It'll be it'll be fun to watch as your career progresses and see what the future holds for you. So basically kind of this love for, <laughs> to put it bluntly, this love for pain, for pushing yourself to the extreme and truly like getting out there and exploring where other people haven't been before or haven't experienced certain situations. It kind of came from your military backing is, is what I'm understanding. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I discovered as a as a young kid, I had a lot of I had a lot of resilience and a lot of sort of mental robustness. Um, you could call it stupidity. I don't know, but um, I, I found that I had this innate hidden ability to just keep going, um, and this this mental stamina, um, which is why I think I managed to get through the Royal Marine Commando basic training of thirty two weeks uh, at sixteen in, into seventeen years old, which is which is quite rare. Um, I didn't excel at anything, but I didn't fail anything. Um, you know, my surname's Gray, and I was very much Gray by name and Gray by nature. I just blended into the background, kept my head down, and just just got through. And the the, the career I chose in the in the Royal Marines was was that of the Mountain Leader branch. And the Mountain Leaders are extreme cold weather and mountainous experts. So the Royal Marines are famous or renowned for extreme cold weather soldiering they are the world elite experts in it um, the the american forces even go over to norway every year at the moment and are trained by the british royal marines uh, and we've been doing it as the world sort of military experts since since the 70s and within the royal marines there's an elite branch of guys called uh, the royal marine mountain leaders now you've got to be a senior or not a senior instructor but you have to have served about five or six years and reached the rank of corporal to apply for that uh, and I did that in 1998. So I got through that course as well. And it was that course that got me into all of the more elite, more extreme level stuff, because my job was extreme. The places we went, the training we delivered and the manner in which we, we went about it was was always in the toughest and coldest of places. Northern Norway, as you know, living living in Iceland, where you are, the weather can just turn and flip you know, to to be completely inhospitable. And that's when the Royal Marine Mountain leaders get up and get out and, and start doing doing their job. And I spent, you know, a good 15, 16 years doing that job. And I became the chief instructor for the whole branch and the chief instructor for the Royal Marines in the delivery of that training for everybody else. So as you can imagine, the places I've been, the extreme places I've ended up has created this, person that has a huge respect for mother nature but also a huge love and passion and a, a want to just see how far i can actually go and push myself with my experience i'm hugely respectful um, i don't i don't 
take risks and I don't push myself to to places I shouldn't be going. But over all of the years of my career and doing this, it's become a little stepping stone journey. So I go from one step to the next, which is slightly bigger, to the next, which is slightly bigger. You know, I, I sometimes will associate it with a, a CEO in a, in, a, in a big corporate company. He didn't join as a 17-year-old boy and, and go straight to the straight to the top job in the boardroom. He spent 25 years gaining experience, and when he got there, he, he was ready to run the company. And I'm sort of done the same thing. You know, it's it's been a, a lifetime's experience that's got me to the place where I have the ability and the skill sets to do some of the things I do now. And you mentioned it briefly, but what do you think is the most important aspect of the mental fitness in what you do? Because, yeah, it takes a physical dexterity, but it also is hugely mental to, just like you said, just keep going. Um, how has that kind of impacted, that training impacted you? Yeah, it's really, really important. And I've, again, it's, I don't think it's something you're born with, as people say, but it's something you can develop through your life through experience. Now, I I was fitter and stronger when I was 21, 22 than I am now. I can't, you know, I can't run around a, a, a 10 kilometer circuit as quick now as I could when I was 22, but I could never even have dreamed of doing what I do now as a 22 year old because I just didn't have the mental maturity or the mental um, awareness to go and, and just hang in there when things got tough because you, you, you're just not used to that. And that's taken many, many, many years by pushing myself that little bit further and pushing myself to the edge on many, many, many occasions where that edge was a lot less than what the edge is now, if that, if that, if that makes sense. And by doing that and overcoming these hurdles and overcoming these barriers, you can push yourself a little bit further the next time because you start to shift the line. And you start to build a, a maturity and an understanding in your mind of where you can go and what your body can actually do. And we're all different. And we all need to, if we're going to take on these things, and not everybody can, if you, you know, understanding how you perform when you're lonely and when you're on your own for five days is one thing, but 35 days is a completely different thing, completely fatiguing yourself every single day. Now, nobody really knows until they're put in that position, regardless of how strong you think you are no one really knows until they're there whether they can do it or not and you know i've i've hit some walls i've hit some real hurdles in my life where i thought i just can't push through i just can't push through but because i think i've step and stone that step stone that journey and and done it so gradually and just trying to take the next step so gradually i do manage to just about hang in and break through that wall and push on uh, and i've always managed to have the ability to do that by not taking on too much too soon and not trying to get too ambitious of where I want to be too early, which is a mistake a lot of adventurers make and a lot of young guys in their early 20s, early 30s make. They assume they've got this physical ability to just completely annihilate anything they're going to set themselves out to do. And it, it is that mental resilience generally, not the physical breakup of the body, that ends quite a lot of expeditions. And you'll see some of the... The biggest and best expeditions out there are, are done by much, much more mature people. Most of them, you know, some of the extreme ocean rowing, some of the extreme Antarctic polar stuff. It's done by guys in the late 30s, early 40s and, and even older. And, you know, quite often that, that's that's for good reason, because they've built that mental resilience and that mental maturity to push through uh, and, and understand what's happening to them. 
Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about the fact that, like you said, you know, you could be physically more fit when you're younger, but you're mentally more fit now and you're able to push yourself <laughs> further. Uh, that's yeah. so technically it would be best if you could just build that mental fitness as fast as possible while you still have the great physical fitness. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And that's experience for me. That's life experience. You can't just become a, 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 an amazing, resilient, robust individual without going on a journey. You know, if you, if I, you know, I've got an ambition to do some, some more huge expeditions in Antarctica, but if I have no experience, no resilience or robust robustness experience in my life, you know, if I if I turned up day one, having done nothing before, to just attempt that, I, I I wouldn't last a week because you know the hurdles would have just been so big, and physically nothing would have been any different. But mentally, my mind would be telling me every day, "What are you doing? You can't do this. This is horrendous." Whereas now I tell myself, "This is going to be horrendous. You know it's going to be horrendous, but you know what to do. You know how to deal with it. You can slow down, speed up, react to the weather, react to mother nature. You know what you're doing now." So let's just get on with it and do this. You know, it's, um, yeah. This, this might be kind of a random question, but for somebody who, uh, since you're an instructor, you've done this for years, if somebody is facing this mental hurdle, whether it's, you know, something um, more mundane, like they're trying to get through a job or, you know, they're trying to get through something in their daily life instead of in an expedition, has there, is there something that you've kind of built up as like a mental model that you go through to keep mm -hmm. pushing? Uh, even, even when you think there's a wall, like you can't go any farther. Yeah. For me, it's about, it's about getting rid of unwanted distractions in your, in your life. And people fill themselves up with, 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 with so much nonsense around them, whether it be work, whether it be family, whether it be, you know, whatever. And I, I really try to uncomplicate life and uncomplicate situations, especially if I'm planning something really important. And something I say to guys, you know, if you're, if you're going to go for a really important interview or you've got something really important to you in your life that's coming up, then you need to be the best person you can be on that any, any given day. And for me, all it is really, all I do is get the basics right. The basics of living life right. Uh, and that's eating properly. It's exercising. It's sleeping properly so that I can recover, relax, be the best I can be. And, and these are what I call my depressants. So eating a poor diet is a depressant. Not exercising is a depressant. Not getting enough sleep means your body can't rest and it, it adds to the other problems. Therefore, you're depressing and fatiguing your mind e e even more. And all of those things are combined. So when I'm preparing for something really important, like a, a really important meeting, or you know, I, I will talk to corporate, corporate audiences about this. If you've got this day on stage or this interview or this really important thing, then you've got to say to yourself, right, I'm going to start preparing myself physically and mentally for that two weeks before. So two weeks before, I'm going to, I'm going to knock alcohol on the head, maybe, you know, have a few drinks every now and then, but, you know, don't do those things in excess. I'm going to get up early. And when I say exercise, that doesn't mean you have to go for ridiculous marathon runs and long sessions in the gym. It can just mean getting up half an hour early and you normally do and going for a walk, clearing your head, not checking your phone first thing in the morning and just, you know, just getting out and, and doing that. Or if you like jogging or cycling or swimming, then just do a little bit more of it. 
but make sure you're backing that up with a healthy diet, not eating all of the horrible fatty foods and, you know, and, and just, you don't have to be a nutritionist. You know, people generally know what's good for you, what's bad for you, you know, plenty of fruit and vegetables and proteins and carbohydrates just to give you the energy, you know, to back up the exercise you're doing. None of it has to be excessive. It just has to be done right. And if you do that, you will just watch your your mind opening up. You will just watch your body starting to feel better. Your fatigue levels will just, you know, go through the roof. You'll be sleeping much better. Therefore, you can perform, you can think, and you can be the best you can be. And it really is that simple. You know, there's, there's no great, you know, there's no great, you know, books you have to read or huge understanding. It's just fact. It's just exercise regularly, eat well, you'll sleep better, you'll perform better. I think it's interesting when, when you said that last part, it's, it kind of reminded me of there's no secret formula that you're going to be able to buy off of a Facebook ad. Um, I, I feel like too often we overcomplicate it for ourselves and we want there to be something else. And the truth of the matter is, it's just, it's simple, but we have to put in the work. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And again, that, that's mental. And if you do do that, even if you do it for five or six days, you know, if people are listening now, you know, if, if I was to say to them to challenge all your listeners now to get up half an hour before you do normally do for five, six days and just go for a half an hour walk, no mobile phones, don't check your phone when you get up, just get up, have a glass of water. You don't need to eat any breakfast. Just go out, have a nice walk. If it's dark where you are. If it's raining, put a jacket on, get an umbrella, just go out and get some fresh air. Come back, have a healthy breakfast, have some fruit, have some you know nice cereals or whatever, and then just relax for ten minutes. Then start your day, and I guarantee every single one of those people who do that will feel so much better by the end of the week for doing that, and they will just be enlightened. And it, it, it can really be that that simple, but people make millions and millions, and it's a multi-billion-pound industry, you know, telling people what they should eat, what they shouldn't eat, how they should exercise, why they should exercise. Um, and, you know, people feel they have to listen to it because why would the injury be so big if it, if it wasn't true? Um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not knocking those guys. There's a huge amount of great advice out there from some, some excellent individuals and companies. But there are also a lot of poor ones who are literally just in it to, to, to take the money out of, your, out of your bank account, knowing you'll never follow it through. Uh, but it's down to the individuals just to you know, understand what they want to get out of life. If you want to get more out of your life and be a better person and, and get more out of it, then just do the simple things better. I love it. Such such practical advice. Um, I'd like to I'd like to start talking about your your expeditions though. So you were working as a Royal Beret, and then in well, were there any experiences that you had while you were uh, in in the military that kind of stand out and you'd like to share from your travels during that time? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, this 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 particular story was a was a game changer in my life. There's I mean, I think most people have what I call a, like a demarcation line in, in life where something happens on a particular day where everything just changes. You read something or you see something or you're inspired by someone or you're inspired by something. And you go, do you know what? I'm not doing enough with my life or um, I, I want to start doing a lot, a lot, a lot more of that in in 2005, I was a, a Royal Marine Mountain Leader um, Sergeant. I was a senior instructor. I'd been doing that job for quite some time. And I got asked if I wanted to be the, the cold weather advisor to a ship called HMS Endurance. 
which is the UK's Antarctic patrol vessel. Um, it's, it's employed in Antarctica, you know, probably about 10 months of the year, uh, nine to 10 months of the year. It has about 120 crew on board and it's, it's tasked by the Royal Navy and the UK Foreign Commonwealth Office. And its role in Antarctica is, is surveying, it helps out with scientific research, it's a UK presence, it, it does all sorts of individuals, individual tasks. But what, what a lot of the ship's company don't have is the ability, because a lot of them are first timers on there, they've never been to anywhere as extreme as Antarctica. So they need to have an expert on board who can teach them how to look after themselves in the extreme cold conditions. Now, they're all military people, so they're all fit, motivated, enthusiastic. But by going ashore off a ship in Antarctica and the weather comes in, you need to have that extra level of expertise, not just your basic military training. So my job is to lecture them, to teach them. Oh, by the way, I took the job, obviously. <laughs> um, was to teach them, train them, make sure they had the right kit, the right equipment, and then supervise them when they did get off the ship. And quite often, you know, pardon the language, but the ship would hit the fan, the winds would come in, it's what Antarctica does. And you witness that in, in your part of the world where you live, you go from sunny day to, you know, extreme whiteout, horrific storms, just like that. And you can't always predict it because a lot of it's created, you know, by local weather systems. So um, whilst on board that ship in the remotest place on earth, I just found this, this new log, this mean, this I just found something. It was just incredible. I'd never witnessed or seen anything like it. And I was blessed by having this amazing captain who would allow me and the five young Royal Marines I had working for me, when we weren't looking after the ship's company, go exploring and doing our own thing. And we had helicopters on board the ship. And quite often they would have to do training flights. So I would get the pilots to drop me off on huge icebergs or in places in Antarctica where no one has ever stood before, literally fly me to there. No one's ever been there before. And we would spend the whole day just doing our thing, exploring Antarctica um, and then getting picked up at, at the end of the day. Quite often the weather came in, we'd have to camp overnight or, or tented storms. And I just fell in love with this place, Antarctica. Absolutely. And there's just one particular day where I was, I was out on my own. I just got dropped off on my own in, in quite a safe area. I wasn't on glaciers or anything like that. It was just this huge snowbank rising out of the sea. And I was just skiing along a beautiful, calm day. I couldn't hear anything. Probably very few people, if any, had ever been there before in history. And I was just sat there on my skis, on my own, just taking in this surrounding. And it was just a game-changing moment for me. And I just wanted to explore and, and do more things in this environment. Meanwhile, while on ship, I started reading a lot. And I love history. I love military history, but in particular, the, what we call the heroic age of polar exploration, which is from around 1900 to 1922, which is one of the, you know, the most extreme expeditions on land started to happen with Scott and Amundsen making it to the South Pole for the first time and all of the attempts prior to people actually getting to the South Pole in 1903 with the Discovery Expedition with Scott, 1909, 07-09, the Nimrod Expedition with Shackleton, both got reasonably close but didn't quite make it. But reading about all of this um, and about leadership and about understanding how you cope in the most you know, horrific of situations was something I started to discover this guy 
Um, almost every major university in the world today use Shackleton's leadership principles in their leadership, you know, scholarships and, and schools and teachings. And a huge amount of hugely successful corporate industries use what he did with people and his understanding of people today. And I became fascinated in it, with it as well. So mixed with Antarctica and the Shackleton story and being on that ship for that one year changed my life. Wow. And that's kind of what transitioned into you saying yes to this next opportunity, which is something I want to kind of discuss. Mm. And that's your 2013 expedition. But before before we get into it, um, just, we were talking a bit before we started recording. For those who yeah. don't know what happened on that Shackleton expedition, can you got it, kind of give a rundown? Um, because this was at the very beginning. So people were trying to reach the South Pole, um, but nobody nobody had successfully done it yet, correct? So in, so between 1914 and 1916, it, this was Shackleton's involvement in his third major expedition. And the expedition was about being the first person to transit across the entire Antarctic continent on foot. That was the end. The reason being, and, and Shackleton was one of the guys in the race to get to the South Pole to be the first guy on foot to make it to the South Pole. Now, he attempted in a, he was member of a, an expedition in 1903 with Robert Falcon Scott, it's called the Discovery Expedition, where they attempted to, to make the South Pole. They, the, the expedition was not, not a complete disaster. They, they, they learned a huge amount about traveling in that environment, bearing in mind these guys are doing something that no one has ever done before. No one's tried to move across that terrain or even really understood Antarctica. We look back at their attempts now and, and you could you could say, well, how naive, you know, that was just ridiculous. Why would they even try that? But knowledge is power, yeah? You know, they didn't have that knowledge. We have it now and it's easy for us to sit on our high horse and say, well, why did you do that? We would have done exactly the same thing. So it was unsuccessful. And Shackleton was actually on the sledging journey in, in, in 03 um, and he got you know quite quite severely injured. He was, he was very ill and he was sent home on a relief ship uh, early from that expedition. And he became a bit of a legend in his own right, because he's now going around the world to, to lecture about the expedition that wasn't even his expedition in place of Scott, because he was still in Antarctica. And he decided he wanted to put his own expedition together. And, and he did that in 1907. It was called the Nimrod Expedition. And most of these expeditions are named after the ships that they, they, they go down on. And he actually managed to get within 88 nautical miles of the South Pole on this particular expedition before again realising he didn't have enough time to get there and all the way back. They, it was taking too long. They didn't have the rations or the supplies to finish the journey and get home and, and still be alive. They, he had to make the call. So he turned around. So the pole had still not been beaten or, or achieved until 1911. Uh, when a race erupted between Scott from 03 and Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian. Um, and Roald Amundsen started from a place called the Bay of Wales, and Scott started from a place called McMurdo Sound. Now, for efficiency and travel in the day over that type of terrain, Amundsen was far superior, and he used dogs, and he knew how to train dogs properly, he knew how to, to train dogs to pull sledges properly, and he managed to become the first guy in December 1911 to actually reach the South Pole, followed by Scott a month later in, in, in January uh, 1912. 
So the poll had been complete. And unfortunately, Scott and his entire sledging party were killed um, or died on that return journey. Um, they were stuck in a tent in a severe storm in February 19, 1912, and they were just too weak to to continue. And they all perished in, in, in the tent. It's an incredible story. So Scott, who wanted to achieve, Shackleton, who wanted to achieve this for so, so many years, it had now been taken away from him. It had been done. So he decided, well, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to cross the whole continent. So he put this expedition together to cross the entire continent. He, he, he sent one ship to the Ross Sea, one ship to the Weddell Sea, the two major seas either side of Antarctica. He was going to go to the South Pole. The ship at the other side would lay caches and supplies all the way up to the South Pole. So he only had to carry supplies to the South Pole. Then he would make his way through these pre, pre-laid caches or fuel supplies to get all the way across. That was the plan. However, by January, his ship called the Endurance had been trapped in the sea ice, what we call the pack ice, which freezes and falls with the season every year. And quite often it, it happens, it, it, the precedent had been set before, but quite often the ships would, they would just wait for the season, they would have enough supplies to sit out the season, wait for the ice to melt, drop back into the sea and carry on the journey. Didn't happen in Shackleton's case, the pack ice was so severe, it actually crushed the ship and sank it to the bottom of the sea. So this is, you know, they, they'd spent an entire Antarctic winter living on this ship in 100% darkness in the Antarctic winter, horrific conditions, minus 60 degrees, you know, horrific gale force winds, uh, until having to move on to the ice shelf, taking all the stores, all the supplies off the ship onto the ice shelf. When the ship was gone, they then had to live on this ice shelf, waited for the sea to, to break up, which wasn't until April 1916. So they'd been there since January 1915, April 1916. They managed to get in these free lifeboats, which they saved, and rowed for their lives, for their lives, for a week in the most horrific conditions, and eventually hit landfall uh, in April 1916. Um, I think it was about the 11th, 12th of April, something like that. But now they're on a little island called Elephant Island. It's horrific. You know, no one's ever been there in the history of the world. Bearing in mind the whole world is now enraged by World War One, which which started on the day they left Plymouth in the UK on the 8th of August 1914. So they had no idea what was happening. So no one was really worried about these guys. They thought they'd already assumed they were they were perished, lost at sea. Um, so no one was looking for them. So he had to make out a journey. He had to make one of the little rowing boats, lifeboats, just designed to bob around in the sea. He had to make one of them seaworthy and make an attempt to go and raise the alarm somewhere else. Now, there were closer land places in South Georgia where they started, but he couldn't tack the boat. He couldn't build a sailboat. He could only make makeshift masts. So he had to go with the wind and tides. So the only place they could possibly get to was South Georgia, where it all started. This is 800 nautical miles away across the roughest ocean on the planet. Um, so he picked five guys, left 22 guys behind. Um, and in late late April, they set off on this unbelievable journey, described by Sir Edmund Hillary as the most remarkable survival tale ever told, this particular sea journey. Navigating by the stars, aiming for a 150-kilometre island, 800 nautical miles away. Incredible. Uh, but they made it. Somehow they made it in about 17 days. Uh, once they hit Elephant uh, South Georgia, they landed on the wrong side. They couldn't risk attacking round the island and coming back in because it had been blown out to sea. They had to hit it head on, but the only way they could raise the alarm was to get to the whaling stations on the other side. That meant crossing a mountain range that no one had ever crossed before. 
uh, with very minimal mountaineering gear. They had some mountaineering knowledge, but had very minimal mountaineering gear. And South Georgia is a very dangerous place. Um, they, three of them roped themselves up together and made this crossing across South Georgia. And he made it, somehow he made it. It was one of the most incredible um, stories, you know, you, uh, imaginable. He managed to make it across South Georgia into a whaling station called Strong Ness. And he knocked on the whaling station manager's door's house, someone who was very well known to him. And the guy just didn't recognise who was stood in front of him. Because they, they used to use this blubber from seals that they used to kill for food. And they used the blubber in the stoves. And the stove was known as the blubber stove. But it used to give off this horrible black soot and everybody, all 28 men were just caked in this black. They would, you, know, you couldn't recognise them. They were just, their skin was just thick of this stuff. And but as soon as he opened his voice and said, I am Shackleton, the whaling station manager broke down in tears and because he thought his friend was, was long gone. So immediately he had to set about rescuing his guys. This is now May 1916. He immediately went around to the other side of South Georgia in a trawler and picked up the three guys that were left behind. So the six from the crossing were back together now. And then he had to get a ship to get back to Elephant Island to pick up the other 22 men. That took him four attempts because he couldn't get in because of the sea and the ice and the way, you know, it's just such an inhospitable place. Um, he just couldn't get in until the 30th of August, believe it or not, that year. He managed to get a ship called the Yelko from the Chileans and eventually got back into Elephant Island, not even knowing if they were still alive, if they were still there, whether they'd attempted their own um, rescue attempt thinking Shackleton was never going to come back um, in one of the other boats but all 22 men were there all the whole expedition managed to survive this incredible credible tale you know and and he brought all 28 men including 27 men and himself back to the safety um, and you know it was it was just such an incredible story that when an opportunity came up uh, in, in in 2013 to potentially take part in a, in a modern day reenactment, well, then I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna jump at the opportunity to try and get on that team. That yeah, literally, it's such an incredible story of just and, and the fact that he went back like he didn't leave them and was like you know I'm so glad I survived that they're probably all dead by now, um, just at, four times trying to go back like that's incredible. Yeah, uh, I, it, it 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 was it was unbelievable. And I mention at this point, while it's fresh in my mind, that if, if people want to read more, Shackleton's account is a book called Self. Um, and there's so many books being written about this expedition, but the, the best one to read first is Shackleton's own account of the expedition, which is which is known as Self. So, you know, your readers might want to sort of Google that or get on Amazon or, or any of the classic book providers. And um, yeah, you, you won't be able to put the book down. Yeah, I'll have to check that out myself. So, yeah, in 2013, um, it was actually his granddaughter that reached out to you, right? Well, she reached out to a guy called Tim Jarvis, who I didn't know at the time, but he was a quite a prolific Arctic explorer. Uh, he's done a lot of stuff in Antarctica, too. Uh, he's also a, a globally known environmentalist now, um, you know, and uh, he's, you know, he's, he's an incredible guy. And she reached out to him and asked him if he would put an expedition together to, um, to try and reenact within the 100th anniversary of, of her grandfather doing, doing this expedition. And Tim's not a sailor by any means. He's not a seafaring person. He's very much like me. He's a landman, you know, crossing Antarctica, mountains, that, that sort of thing. 
Um, but because of my passion for polar history and my reading, it, it wasn't long before people who knew me had heard about this expedition and says, Baz, do you know about this? And I said, no. You know, who do I get in touch with? What, what's it all about? And uh, I managed to get um, an email address of Tim Jarvis. I sent him an email. I told him about who I was and what I'd done. And he, he, he literally bit my hand off and he said, look, I'd love you to be on the team. He, he took me straight on the team as the mountaineer responsible for the safety of the crossing of South Georgia. But obviously I would need to become part of the whole team and do the ocean crossing and stuff. So at this point, there was myself, a Royal Navy guy called Seb Coulthard, uh, who became the, the sort of ship's engineer. He built everything. He built the boat. He was responsible for the historical accuracy of everything we were doing. A great, great guy. There was three of us on this team. Uh, and then we had to go about finding, um, building the boat, making this thing authentic, trying to get the funds to put it together. Um, it was a multi-million pound expedition. It took four years to put together. We had to find some of literally the best seafaring people on the planet, which we did in two guys called Nick Bubb and Paul Larson, who were both extremely gifted um, and both hold multiple world records for various things uh, on, on oceans. They've done solo round the world trips. Paul Larson has the fastest boat on record under sail. Um, in incredibly gifted people. But guys, modern day sailors don't, don't learn celestial navigation. There's no reason to do it unless they're specifically interested in it. Very few people have those skill sets. So they literally had to go back 100 years and learn how to do it properly, learn how those guys did it, get the old charts and all that sort of stuff, and, and learn how to be these incredible sailors without any of the modern-day tools and, and, and things like that, because we weren't going to use any of that. We got the Royal um, Boat Building College at Lower Stoft in England to help us with the boat, because we still have the original. It was called the James Kerr, named after one of the, the huge financial benefactors, and it sits at Dulwich College in London, where Shackleton went to school. And you can go and visit the boat. So we got a rusty old sea dog called um, Philip Rose Taylor, an incredible guy. And we got him to come along with us and to help us put a plan together to make an exact replica of that boat. And that's exactly what we did. We still have rigging and pictures and documented evidence of exactly how the ship's carpenter, a guy called Chippy McNeese, put it all together. So we knew we could make a very, very accurate, 95% to 100% accurate copy of the rigging, of the sails, of everything that they did on, on, you know, on their original journey. And we made a James Caird, and we called ours the Alexander Shackleton after his granddaughter. So we had the boat, we had the team, Discovery came on board, so therefore we now had the fundings because it was going to be a documentary. Um, and four years after that email I sent to Tim Jarvis, we were, we were heading down to a place called King George Island, where we were looked after by a, a group of Polish guys on a, at a base called um, Arktowski, just on the Antarctic Peninsula. And from there, we, we did a couple of weeks preparation with the boat, final press, final training, got into our 100-year-old clothing, 100-year-old equipment, and dragged the boat to Elephant Island. And then we, we were there, six of us, dressed like they were 100 years prior, on the very same spit of land, with an exact replica boat, having only on that boat what they had to get themselves across the ocean. Uh, and we set off, having no idea if we were going to make it, uh, how long it was going to take, if we were going to run out of supplies or water, were the winds going to be fair. 
And it was just so surreal being in those that situation. I mean, the conversations we must have had would have been similar ones to what they would have had. The arguments, the little frustrations that you have, the lack of room, the uncomfortableness, the fatigue, the because we never really slept more than a, an hour at a time ever because we, we would always change around in the boat. One guy had to be up top steering with old manila ropes, the, the rudder with a massive compass because he used the compass off endurance. So we had an exact replica compass, a big old thing. We had a chronometer, a big old clock for telling the time because that's what they had. Um, and we, we had a, um, you know, a, a, a device, a sextant for taking readings from the stars and the moon and, and, the, and the sun to identify where we were on, on the planet. Um, and that was it. And off we went. And again, very much like Shackleton, completely un unsupported with no help and no modern, no modern tools. We made it to South Georgia and we landed in King Harkin Bay where, where they landed. Uh, and then it was my job to take over and get the team authentically across South Georgia Island, which um, three of the guys, very much like, which I didn't mention earlier, Shackleton's team, he couldn't take all six across South Georgia because three of them were so incapacitated and so ill that they just didn't have the strength to attempt the crossing. So we left them behind for that reason. The same happened to us in the modern day reenactment. Three of the guys got severe trench foot, which is caused by cold, wet uh, and static conditions. And being having wet feet all the time, not being able to exercise, you know, there are things you can do to minimize um, trench foot, um, but the three of the guys got caught out. So their feet swelled to twice the size and they just couldn't walk, uh, physically couldn't walk. So that left three of us to do the crossing. So before we get into the, the, the mountain crossing though, I just kind of want to back up to that, that seafaring crossing. How big was this boat? Uh, Cause it was, it was a lifeboat. Um, so yeah, I, I, I see the picture that you sent me. Um, it looks like it has a little bit of like uh, canvas on top as well. Tell me a little bit yeah. more about the boat and how long that took. They, they, they covered the top of it um, with with like a, a hard surface. They used like packing boxes and you know things from the supplies and the stores that they had on 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 the actual ship because they unloaded everything off. And Chippy McNeese, the carpenter, was a, an extremely talented guy. And they knew there were going to be big waves crashing over them throughout this journey. So they had to put a thousand kilograms of ballast and rocks and things in the bottom of the boat to make it much more steadier and stable in, in the rough seas. They actually raised the sides up about half a meter all the way around. So they, they built it higher. And then he put a hard cross uh, or whether the dyers could get inside the boat and get some protection from, from the waves. And he, he, did all of the, he did all of this under extreme. He'd made two masts, two big long wooden masts. And then they made sails, rigging sails and, and ropes to, to raise the sails up and down so that could, they could get blown you know, quite well by, by, by the wind. So it's 23 foot long, the boat, but it had bulkheads on either side. So inside, we probably had the, we probably had the space of a, a small double bed and probably about three foot of headroom for six people. So you're always crouched down and hunched up with your knees up to your chest quite often. There was one or two spots where you could actually stretch your legs out if you were really, really lucky. That was like a, a, pr a proper treat when you got to that spot, you know. So, um, you know, you, you would you'd spend hours looking forward to be able to extend your legs. Um, but it was horrible, sick inducing conditions because when we put the stove on, which again was a hundred year old pressure stove like, like they had, 
which would always blow up and the fumes would be everywhere. There was nowhere for those fumes to go. So it was horrible conditions down below. You never really got over the, the sort of seasickness phase that you go through normally quite early on trips. It was always there. And once you've done your five hours resting or cooking or eating, you were back up on watch. And you couldn't wait to get back up on watch because you needed the fresh air. Thank you so much for joining us today for an exciting conversation with Barry Gray. Next week, we are going to finish the story about his expedition recreating Shackleton's journey, as well as talk about phase one of his record-breaking attempt across Antarctica. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this conversation with your friends. I'm Seth Sutherland, and this is Travel Worth Living.